While this podcast contains little to no explicit material, it is sprinkled with some uncensored swears. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. The Omniflex is open. Uh, today, we have a special guest with us. Uh, we have Mr. Peter Atkins, uh, screenwriter, writer of Hellraiser's uh, 2, 3, and 4, and Wishmaster. And uh, the fourth one actually has the script coming out, the original script coming out very soon. Or is it already out? It is out. It's out. It's been out. It's out. October. Okay. Uh, so, hi, Peter. Welcome. Hi. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for the invitation. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, glad to have you. A little bit of background about how this cast came to be. Um, I, uh, I I devour everything that Encyclopocalypse uh, Publications puts out, uh-huh. um, which includes uh, last year they did the novelization for Witchmaster, they, or for Wishmaster. They did a... Wishmaster. <laughs> yeah. That, I see Amanda's <laughs> TV is getting in my head. She's watching Witcher. So, <laughs> um, so they did the novelization for Wishmaster, which if y'all haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's very much, it feels like it could have come out from tour books in the nineties. Uh, it's, right. it's a very, it's a very cool book and, uh, a lot of fun. Christian Fa- Francis was the writer that did it. And it's, it really is fantastic. It's also only six bucks. There's, uh, on Kindle, there's not a lot of good bargains out there. But this is one uh, I love everything they do. They uh, recently they did uh, Titan Find, which was released in America as Creature. Uh, sure. They did a novelization of that, uh, also by Francis. And next up is Vamp. So um, got, got to give a little bit of a plug to them. Sure. Oh, oh no, I'm I'm happy to plug them. Absolutely. They've also reissued some classic novelizations yes, from have. the 80s and 90s. They got Fright Night and Reanimator. I've, I've got that, of course. And uh, at least one other that I'm blanking Hardcore. Um, Hardcore, Paul, yeah. yeah. Paul Schrader. Really, they are doing a fantastic job of preservation. Uh, they have an audiobook on uh, Full Moon Features that during my first COVID scare, um, I got to listen to um, in full, and that ran about 20 hours. Um, that was a fun experience. Wow. Yeah. Had to do something while I was sitting around. And... Uh, most recently, uh, they, they've got just a number of really cool stuff coming. Um, but the one that I wanted to bring up is that they issued a uh, copy of the Hellraiser Bloodline script, the original script, which I sat down and read and uh, did a review of. You can find it on our site. Uh, I thought it was great. I got in contact with uh, our guest today, and um, that got the ball rolling. So, uh Peter, if you can, just a little bit of background about how they wound up publishing the script. I'm very curious to hear this. Sure, sure. Um, well, how far back do we go? <laughs> it's always interesting. When, <laughs> when you start a story, it's like, well, like like when you're writing a script or a novel. Um, do you start when the guy walks into the bar or do you start when he gets the phone call back in the office that makes him walk into the bar? And then you realize if he hadn't met the woman on the Tuesday before that, that phone call <laughs> wouldn't have happened. Anyway. Um, so let me start with this. 
Encyclopopolis. Way back, 14 billion years ago. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. We, we just quote the lyrics from the theme song to the Big Bang Theory by exactly. Naked <laughs> Ladies and, and then come <laughs> sweeping up to date with this observation that exactly. uh, Apocalypse Publications, which is a hell of a mouthful, and I did tell mm-hmm. them that, but I'm used to saying it now, um, is the brainchild of Mark Allen Miller, who um, used to run Seraphim, which is Clive Barker's production company. And so that was how I was first aware of Mark, obviously, you know, because of the Clive connection. Um, and he started in Psychopocalypse in, uh, at first strictly as an audiobook company. He, he realized there were a lot of <laughs> what, what geeks like us like to call classics, whether, whether literary professors would call them classics, I don't know. But he realized there were a lot of classics lying around that were technically out of print, and he wanted to bring them back to life as audiobooks. And I think the first eight months or so of Encyclopocalypse's production life, it was all audiobooks. And he, because of our, what would you say, the, the, the Venn diagram of uh, my work with Clive and his work with Clive meant we had this little point of commonality. And he asked me if I would be willing to do some of my backlist of fiction with them as audiobooks. And I said, sure, of course. So just before lockdown, I had started recording audiobooks of my novel, Big Thunder, and my short story collection, Rumors of the Marvelous. Um, but we didn't get to finish them because uh, <laughs> we could no longer meet up in uh, Encyclopocalypse Studios, a.k.a. Mark's grandmother's house in Long Beach. But I did have the bright idea of uh, shamelessly exploiting my past and saying, why don't we get Doug Bradley, which to those of you who don't know uh, is the actor and very old friend of mine who played Pinhead in the Hellraiser movies. I said, let's get Doug to do Morningstar. He's got, uh, which is another novel of mine. Unlike me, he has a little, you know, converted closet audio studio in his house. So I dropped Doug a line and said, would you consider? And he said, hell yeah. So the first joint project I did with Encyclopocalypse was the audiobook of Morningstar read by the Black Pope of Hell himself, Mr. Bradley. And then in a weird sidestep, uh, <laughs> I narrated, though did not write and had no involvement with the writing of, I narrated the novelization of Fright Night for Mark, partly because Mark had played some tapes to Tom Holland, who was the writer and director of Fright Night. Say, you know, who do you want? Who do you want? Who do you want? He didn't mean to play mine because why would you? I'm English. Um, (laughs) But apparently, and I'm enormously flattered and a little confused by this, Tom said, oh, that guy. And Mark said, he's English. And Tom apparently said, ah, the whole movie's a tribute to Hammer. What the hell? So, uh, so my second project with Inside the Apocalypse was me narrating the novelization of Fright Night. And there's another Venn diagram there because the novelization was written by my other old friends, John Skip and Craig Spector, the godfathers of Splatterpunk. Who just did a tremendous job on that book. Then <laughs> they had started moving into... Um, They'd got the licensing rights to reprint a couple of of those novelizations. I think Fright Night and Reanimator. And yeah, I don't know. I I think Mark just said, 
I'm sure it began as a joke. You know, a lot, a lot of fun projects and a lot of great projects begin as a sort of light-hearted. I might have made a joke about, oh, I'm really annoyed we never did a novelization of Wishmaster. You guys could reissue that or something like that. And Mark said, well, we don't need to reissue it. Why don't we just do it? And and I groaned a little because I thought that meant I would have to do the novelization. And I am not fast, guys. I'm not fast. And then Mark mentioned our mutual friend, Christian Francis, who, how can I say that Christian has so much drive and energy. It's I, I once made a joke to Mark about... Um, you know, the problem with Christian is you'll fall asleep and when you wake up, he'll have built Byzantium out of fucking Lego because he just... So <laughs> we suddenly realized that if I did the novelization of Wishmaster, it would take a year because I'm pathetic. Whereas if we asked Christian to do it, he'd probably do it in two weeks. And he did. I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating. It might have been three. But, uh, <laughs> and as you say, uh, Austin, he did a terrific job. And has gone on to do two or three. By the way, he also has books. His own original books have also been published by Encyclopocalypse. So I want to make sure to mention that. And I've read some of those. They're quite good. Anyway, that had happened. I I promise I'm getting back to the point now. And after that had happened and was, you know, pretty well received and was certainly a lot of fun for me to see after all those years a paperback of Wishmaster, which, you know, should have had a novelization back in the 90s uh, when all the other other 90s horror movies had them. So Mark said, great, let's do it again with Bloodline. Uh, And the reason there's another element of background there, which is that unlike Hellraiser 2 and Hellraiser 3, the finished films of which I was very happy with and were very, you know, pretty accurate representations of the scripts I'd written. Hellraiser 4 is legendarily a troubled production. It's an Alan Smithy movie. So we thought we could could put it right by putting a version of Bloodline out. But I had to stop as Gallup to point out that unlike Wishmaster, I didn't have novelization rights. I had publication rights to my screenplay, but I didn't have novelization rights because all literary rights in terms of prose fiction are of course held by Clive because he, when he created the franchise, he didn't create it with the movie Hellraiser. He created it with the novella, The Hellbound Heart, uh, which meant that when New World finally made the movie, uh, literary rights remained with Clive. So I said to him, we can't do it, Mark, I'm sorry, you know. And then Mark, <laughs> never one to shy away from a challenge or a hurdle, said, well, let's just do the script then. And I said, huh? And he said, well, you just said you had publication rights to the script, and I, which I do, thanks to the union. Let's fly the flag for the union there. Where I said, Indeed. Oh, oh, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So he said, why don't we just do it? It'll look like a paperback. It'll look like a tie-in edition, but it'll be the script itself rather than a novelization. And um, there you go, guys. Sorry, that was a 19-minute long answer to a very simple question. That, that, that's how it came about. We, we, we love that on this cast. We, we do, yes. <laughs> as I said, having read the script um, and being, you know, of course, having seen the fourth film as well, it, it's, it's, it's astonishing to me that this is out. Uh, this is a truly great lost, lost film, so to speak. 
It's it's weird, isn't it? It's, it's a lost film that is right there in plain sight. It's you know people people talk about it as 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 if it's a lost film. It's really just a you know an, an I can't even say incomplete, um, unrealized. Yeah, yeah, unrealized I guess. Yeah. yeah, that's a good word for it. Sure, there's some bold stuff in the script that the image of the proto Cenobites, the Commedia dell'arte characters, as you know. Sure. That was a genius image, and uh, it really, it, you know, for people who are afraid of it because it's in a different format, really don't. It really plays as a movie that you're watching, and you don't even realize you're watching it as you're reading it. It, it, it just subconsciously flows. It's a very cleanly written script. Uh, I've read a number of scripts on my Kindle, and some of them, they're, they're not as clearly written as this. Uh, I read the script to Tenet. Uh, by Christopher Nolan, oh. and let me tell you. Well, that's asking for trouble, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> this is a much better script than that. Was, was it written sequentially, or who knows? It was, I don't, it was a mess, it was a disaster, and uh, it definitely did not mean that I will ever watch the film, I'll put it that way. Oh, you read it? And that, now that's interesting. Yeah, I oh. read the script, and I... I and just, it, put, it actually put you off seeing the movie? Yeah, because it was huh. so unpleasant. And I read a lot of screenplays. I've been reading screenplays since 1996. Sure. And so... This was, yeah, this was a much better written script than that. Um, as I said, this is available um, in paperback. It's available on Kindle. Y'all, I really do highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much, Austin. Thank you. It was a very kind review you gave it, and I really appreciated it. And can I just say, just for, for, for the old collector nerd in me, to those people who might care, it's available in Kindle and um, today's size paperback, as you say, but it's also available in... Uh, what Mark and I call the retro rack size paperback. I love that. Which is the size that paperbacks were, well, my entire life, basically. Um, the sort of the little four and a half by six inch size of every spinning rack in newsstands paperbacks. Hmm. And th- <laughs> thanks to my niggling at Mark when we did Wishmaster, um, they've now done, they call it, the retro series, I think. And you can get uh, Fright Night, Reanimator, Wishmaster, Bloodline, and I think Titan Find. They've done them all in that old school pocketbook size as well, which um, I, oh, I'm not awesome. insisting people buy. If you like books to look like they look now, by all means, buy the other one. <laughs> but if you want to file these things next to your copies of Your Nightmare on Elm Street and... Uh, the fog and Halloween novelizations from the eighties. Make sure you uh, you tick the retro paperback size box, even when you're kind enough to order. Thank you. End of plug. Sorry. Quentin Tarantino <laughs> did that with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The novelization to that for the first few months that it was out, the only format it was available in was the classic style mass market paperback. Oh, I knew he'd done it as a paperback. For, oh, so he did do the the. Four and a half by six size. I haven't. I actually haven't physically seen a copy, but because uh, I read that on Kindle. But. That's that's my copy that I have of the book. Is that, and I read it over July Fourth. Yeah, it was really cool getting to read it in that format. Um, sure. He now did did issue a very deluxe hardcover of it too. Yeah, I gather that just came out. I, and you know, um, while we're patting other people on the back, you know who else does that? There's a company called Valancourt Books, who. Um, are you, I'm sure you guys are aware of uh, Grady Hendrix's book, oh, yeah. Paperbacks from Hell. Yes, love it. Love it to death. Uh, which, which is a huge pictorial celebration of 
the I don't know if they call it the golden age or the slocky age, whatever. But the um, <laughs> it's a golden age for me of of the seventies and eighties paperbacks. Grady Hendrix, along with Will Erickson, produced this lovely coffee table book. And Valancourt books are now into the third series of reissues of titles from Paperbacks from Hell book. Uh, and again, they they too do them in that retro size. So uh, it's like that sort of niche marketing, the way vinyl came back just for collectors at first. The, the rack size paperback is currently having this little indie renaissance which uh, i'm very glad to be part of it's it's great and i i really love it because of course that's obviously my big thing um i have so many of these books um i am of course a horror novelization collector uh big time sure try to get anything i can get my hands on um i spent so much time at goodwill getting stuff um just recently got all of the new line books actually that was a big deal for me was getting the ones from the 2000s which one Uh, the new line they did. Um, it was Jason X, Final Destination. Oh sure, yeah, those, yeah that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And of course, I also have the classic Nightmare on Elm Street. I've got all that. I've got all the Friday the Thirteenth, all that. I had to get those digitally because uh, that was just the only way they were available. But big collector of that stuff. And of course, the superhero novels. I've got probably all but one or all but five or six superhero novels that have been published in that format. So yeah, I'm wow. a fan now. How how far back does your superhero stuff go? Do, do you have, I'm trying to remember what it was called, Batman versus the Fearsome Foursome, the 1966 novel, tie-in novel they did after the movie came out, the 66 movie? Uh, I have it digitally. And I have the other novel that they did uh, tying into the show. So, yes. Oh, yeah, cool. Great, great. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, getting us... Just getting back on track. Um, Sorry. So, no, no, <laughs> this has been the track that we've been on, really, because we are talking about the book. Uh, again, I just, I really, really recommend everybody just check this stuff out. And again, the company, they're doing so much more. They just announced they're doing a Dog Soldiers um, book uh, on the making of it. So, so much good stuff from them. Oh, yeah, you're right. I, they're right. Janine Pipe is doing it, right? Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah. And they've just done, haven't they just done Preston Fassel's book? Yes, Preston Bill Fassel's Landis? book. Yeah. Yes, which I have yet to get to. I uh, haven't had time yet. Intend to, though. Yeah, Mark's like a little mogul now. It's hilarious. He really he's is. Got this, he's got this publishing <laughs> empire from this quirky idea he had after he left Seraphim. And in all fairness, uh, with your uh, response to that question, you really did a good job of it. So I was going to get to some questions about the Wishmaster novelization, too. Again, I was 13 when that movie came out, and I would have killed to have had that book in my hands. Ah, uh, sure, sure. You know, you said the time at the beginning. Um, I guess the big question I have now is, just to go back even further, how did you get involved in the Hellraiser franchise? Because I have a million questions about those movies. Sure. Well, I, I well, can, can I just open that with with a caveat that I have to make a lot on podcasts. To the sure. people who have, have listened to me before, I, I, I've told these stories, so I apologize. In fact, to all of you who have heard me interviewed before, go off and make a pot of coffee or a cup of tea or something, and uh, I'll take six <laughs> minutes, and when you come back, you won't have to listen to, uh, to me. To I knew that was going to be a question that you'd been asked before, but we still have to sure. do our rounds. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. No offense at all. Um to, to you guys, I mean, of course you have to ask that question. I just feel very self-conscious because, because I was picked to this 
imaginary listener or viewer rolling their eyes like, oh, fuck, I can, here he goes again. I met Clive at Allerton <laughs> Library in June 1974. Um, I got involved with Hellraiser because I'd been involved with Clive and Doug uh, many, many years before that is, is the short answer. Well, <laughs> it won't be so short. We had, I was going to say Ron. I mean, there were six people of us in it. So I, Clive, Doug, and I went on to work together there was a theatre company uh, in Liverpool, which is where we're all from. And uh, for shorthand, I'll just call it the Dog Company. It went through 17 names over the 10 years of its life. But um, in, in fact, actually, to call back to your last question, Austin, the um, thank you very much for the kind words about the Commedia dell'arte sequence in the Bloodline screenplay. That was really a kind of callback slash love letter to our days in the dog company because we had, we'd been very influenced by the Commedia and uh, we were briefly a, a mime company, a non-spoken word theater company and had played all the Commedia characters. Um, I was usually Piero, Clive was usually Harlequin, um, our friend Phil Rimmer, uh, after whom a character in Bloodline is named, just to close that circle as well, um, was uh, Pulcinella. So, you know, we loved that stuff, and I loved it, and that's why I put it in the Bloodline script. Dog Company, un- under various names, ran from, well, they'd been around a, a year or so before I joined, so about 1973 to about 1986 or seven. I actually left in 1980 and moved back to Liverpool. But um, obviously, you know, <laughs> we were old friends and stayed in touch. And after Clive had had his great success with Books of Blood and had met Chris Vig and uh, they'd formed a company called Film Futures to make British-based horror movies originally. They made Hellraiser and were going to make a sequel. And in, in fact, I've, I've said this before as well in interviews, it, it's, it's a bittersweet thing to say. Um, my first screenplay and Tony Randall's first directing gig um, really wouldn't have come about if it hadn't been for uh, a tragic situation for, for somebody else. Um, when they were first thinking about a sequel to Hellraiser, it was going to be written and directed by um, Michael McDowell, who was a, a gay horror writer. So you can understand the the affinity mm-hmm. with Clive. They'd met and become friends. Uh, Michael McDowell, as well as being a novelist, had written the screenplay for Beetlejuice, so he was kind of a hot property. Um, There was a personal tragedy in Michael's life, um, very related to the decade. For personal reasons, Michael could not uh, take the job. He, He hadn't technically been hired. It was just an intention. But when that happened... (laughs) Uh, Clive settled no I I don't know but um, Chris Fig was looking around for another writer and Clive was kind enough to show Chris I'm not sure what he showed him a couple of short stories and a novella and I don't know if Chris even bothered reading but he called me up and we had a conversation and um, somehow I scammed my way in I mean obviously Clive's recommendation helped a lot you know but uh, but that that was how I became involved with Hellraiser two, 
And then I stayed on board for Hellraiser 3 and Hellraiser 4, well, a.k.a. Bloodline. As I said, I, the, you mentioned earlier that you were quite pleased with the, those two films. Yeah, the, the first two are they're really fantastic films. Uh, that was kind of a drought oh, of things. That was kind of about the time that we were going through a real horror drought, honestly, in my opinion. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the horror of the late 80s, early 90s. Right, right. Yeah. Now, and, and I'm not going to say there aren't some great films at that time. I mean, Child's Play was in theaters for the, at the same time as uh, Hellbound, for example. That's a fantastic one. But I don't know. It was, just, it, was, it, was, it was very much a drought period, in my opinion, as someone who's studied sure. this era extensively. And it, yeah. it's frustrating. So th- these two films really do stand out to me as really good examples I'm not saying that, again, indie horror was really good. Indie horror was really starting to come up, uh, to percolate at that point. Right, right. But these were two films that got good, solid distribution. I remember when they came out, and I was, let's see, four and eight. Oh, yeah. It used to be, the industry used to have this phrase, mini-majors, because Mm -hmm. the the makers of Hellraiser 1 and 2 were New World Pictures, uh, originally yes. formed by Roger Corman, as I'm sure you guys know. Though Corman had moved on and sold the company by the time we were involved with the Hellraiser Pictures. But th- there's no way New World were a studio in, in the old sense of Paramount, MGM, Warner Brothers, you know, from, from the golden age of film, um, who, who those studios were known as the majors in the business. But there was this phrase, the mini-majors, which referred to companies that didn't own physical lots the way the big guys did, but they had you know, very effective and national distribution systems set in place. So that, yeah, you know, technically they were indie pictures, but they sort of, in business terms, they were... They operated more like studio pictures. Yeah, you're right. Um, we felt we felt we were feisty little indies because we had no money, but um, yeah, they certainly they did they did have big national distribution. That's for sure. Um, in fact, uh, I remember um, Hellraiser three even got a comic book. <laughs> oh yeah, that that's true. That's true. My yes, I I, I did the comic book adaptation of Hellraiser three. So I guess in in a weird way. Uh, Wishmaster and Bloodline, the screenplay. Now they're not my first experience with movie tie-ins. If you count yeah. comic book adaptations, yeah, because that was a that was a really good one. Uh, the art was really nice. Yeah. I, now, are you talking about the Hellraiser three adaptation, or are you talking about the the little standalone story I did in the uh, Hellraiser comic book? I'm talking about the adaptation. Sure. Sure. Yeah, but you're right about that about the the mini majors. Uh, I'm someone who. Obviously, distribution is something that I'm fascinated by. Empire Pictures, anything Charles Band was doing in the 80s, I find. I could sit and read for hours about it. Um, I collect movie <laughs> ads, actually. And so I'm really fascinated by that. You would also, uh, when you did Wishmaster, you'd uh, link up with uh, Live Entertainment, one of my favorite tiny little niche studios that would go on to, through acquisitions and name changes, be a, a couple of companies. Time. Well, yeah, yeah. Live became artisan. Um, was that after Blur Witch, or had they become artisan prior to Blur Witch? Before, Before Blur Witch was kind yeah. of when they went really national with artisan. Yeah, the, <laughs> the um, I certainly do not begrudge them their success, but they got a little snooty 
after Blair Witch. They did. And I remember, um, I don't know if it was me and Bob Kurtzman went in. because You know, Bob directed Wishmaster. Yeah. I wrote it, obviously. And until Blair Witch, we'd been their biggest money makers when they were live. We'd given them this sizable hit for an indie. You know, I mean, obviously. (laughs) Again, we're not talking Warner Brothers money. But we'd given them a very, very profitable movie. And then after Blair Witch, which was huge, I mean, much more of a success than financial success than Wishmaster had been. I think it was Bob and me. We went in to pitch something. And they were kind of dismissive of us because they thought they were classy now. Uh, and I remember coming out of the meeting thinking, well, fuck those guys. Because uh, I think they no longer wanted to mess with the kind of B-movie shit that uh, apparently Bob and I were specialists in. So, sorry, just having a little vent there. Oh, you nailed something. No, no, you you, you, you went off on a vent that I'm going to unfortunately have to take up. The, no, not unfortunately, very fortunately. I never get the opportunity to take something like this and uh, gripe about this. Um, I'm fascinated by the death of that kind of beat happening um, because that's obviously that's that's my heart there. A movie like sure. Wishmaster <laughs> is so much more my heart than a lot of what comes out now. I just, I love I love special effects horror. I love horror that's not afraid to be funny, as sure. as these films very much are. They're very good laughs. Um, I'm not afraid horror that's fun. And you know, obviously, I'm not knocking Blair Witch. It's a classic. But I, I guess what I'm talking about is the idea of elevated horror. My heart's always going to be with Beast. Sure, sure. Like I said, I'm someone who will sit and listen to a 20 hour audio book about full moon features. Believe me, this is right. where my heart is. And I can see that in 1999, you had this exact moment where there was just something in the water. Horror came back bigger than ever, but there was a cost. I would say I'm uh, I was very happy to see uh, Robert England uh, out of makeup. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Well, because that is, and this is very little to do with me, one of the pleasures of Wishmaster is, um, is it is like a sort of roll call you know, a farewell kiss to to eighties and early nineties horror, because we got everybody in it. We got Tony Todd, we got Kane Carter, Kane Harder. I'm sorry, we got Roberts, we got um, Ted Raimi, we got Reggie. I'm going to forget people. We got Reggie Bannister. Uh, we even got Angus Scrim, the tall man from Phantasm, to uh, narrate the opening voiceover. So it really was like a you know a high school reunion. Well, high school graduation, I guess, because yeah, it it did. Not that we thought this at the in the moment, but it was a kind of I don't want to say last gasp because <laughs> that sounds very sad, mm-hmm. but um, it was a a valedictory, let's say, to um, to that yeah. particular strand of horror. The reason we could get all those people, I actually got Tony Todd because of the. Um, Candyman connection, but um, everybody else, it was Bob's Rolodex. Bob Kurtzman, as a, again, I'm sure you guys know, was the K in KNB, the premier um, makeup effects company. Uh, so he had applied makeup to all these people in in all their hits. Um, so uh, I don't know whether he had blackmail photos or whether they just liked him. I, it was the latter, I assure you. Um, but th- that that's how we got him. 
Which, yeah, which is certainly, certainly one of the pleasures of the movie for people. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Again, it's, it's, it's a shame that it's the kind of film you're not seeing so much anymore because that kind of simple, be careful what you wish for premise is, it's delightful. Well, it certainly worked for Wonder Woman 84, didn't it? <laughs> Interestingly enough, we actually interviewed someone with a connection to that last year. Uh, he created Maxwell Lord. Yeah, uh, so we interviewed uh, James DeMatteis last year. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. That was a real pleasure, real pleasure. We, oh, I bet. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, as I said, I, I mentioned I was 13 when that stuff, when that came out. So, like, I mean, I'm really getting to revisit some of my golden tags I was watching all these movies at this time. I was inhaling all of them. I do have generalized writing questions here. And so sure. just going through the basics, like where does your inspiration come from <laughs> in either like when you adapted or did the screenplays for Hellraiser 2 through 4 or Wishmaster mm-hmm. or any of your other literary works? Well, you know, the glib answer always is, well, you had to pay the rent. (laughs) You know, it's such such a tough question to answer. And and the thing is, the reason I think why authors or screenwriters um, devolve into either glibness and humor or pomposity is because (laughs) they're both the truth. You know, it's it's a very difficult question to answer in a quotidian manner because the truth is I, I think i mean none of us know an analogy i've used before is like somehow um a bit of grit gets in the oyster mm-hmm. and the shit that accretes around it if you're lucky produces a pearl because uh well i think yeah i mean the etymological origin of the word inspiration um is related to breathing right you you, you breathe in the idea, which would uh, suggest it's it's not so much invention as channeling, which is you know hardly an original observation on my part, um, but but try, but trying to avoid both glibness and pomposity, um, I'll say my generalized inspiration is weirdly I, I I can call right back to what Austin was talking about about being thirteen when he saw those movies that I was involved in. My general inspiration, like it is, I think for all artists is the shit you fell in love with. Um, and whether that's um, the music you heard when you were 12, the movies you saw when you were 10, the comic books you read when you were eight, whatever it is. Those of us who are <laughs> blessed slash cursed, question mark, who knows, with the artistic gene, the creative gene. It's like you don't really have an option. It's like you you... you I think the word you used, Austin, was inhale. You just you inhale this stuff, and in a way, the natural exhalation after that inhalation is to do more of the same. It's like, oh, I want to do that. You know, when I'm a kid reading, I'm the exact generation. I'm the Stan and Jack generation. I, I was like seven when Stan and Jack started doing. Yep. Fantastic Four, Avengers, Doctor Strange, Spider. Well, sorry, Steve Ditko was Doctor Strange and Spider Man, but you just you get hit with this stuff, and and you want. It's not even a selfless thing of oh, I want to give back. I've heard authors say that I I wanted to give back to the field which had given so much to me, which is certainly true, but I don't know whether it's um, 
so much a conscious choice uh, as a, a kind of metastatic reaction. It's like uh, you get infected. That's that's the analogy we should use as horror guys, right? It gets yeah. in you. It's <laughs> gotta get out. You become infected. It's perfect too. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's the virus, man. It's um, so. It, I don't know. You know, as a kid, I I loved this stuff. And, and by this stuff, I don't just mean horror. I mean the big tech. Again, as, as you guys said earlier, there's room for a range of tones in there. This stuff to me means anything imaginative and exciting and thrilling and mysterious. So, um, so that's the, you know the inspiration is all the fun stuff, the the great stuff. The fun is terribly important, but it's also you know it's like it. For weirdos like us, it's spiritually essential, isn't it? It's it's not just fun. It's um, and of course, and of course, some of the stuff we revere is also deeply, magnificently profound artwork. Um, so <laughs> maybe all of us are just you know wishing and hoping that we could contribute even a tenth of uh, the power and sustenance we we, we draw from. The work of the past. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. Yes, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. When you're writing, what what is one of the techniques that you found that helps uh, suck the audience into the tension of the story, the conflict? Wow. I don't know. Um, well, I mean, I, I think probably, and, and again, this wouldn't be um, this wouldn't be an original observation by me. To borrow the language of stage magicians, misdirection is always a good technique. And depending on whether you're talking movies or prose fiction, the misdirection can take various forms. A very simple way of saying it would be, you know, the old thing of, let's go pictorial. If if you're looking at your protagonist uh, in the living room and they hear a sound and you have the composer up the music and you head in that direction and there's nothing there and the music stops and they breathe a sigh of relief and turn back and boom, there something is. So, so that's a very simple, obvious thing of look over there. Ha, it was over here. But, um, but I think there are other you know narrative ways to to achieve that kind of thing and and i think often you can misdirect in tone um you can you can start light and then by by whatever means you have at your disposal be they pictorial or literary you just um you drop a little poison in the water so that there's um something's wrong and the, the reader or the viewer is not quite sure what, but they're just a little less comfortable than they were 30 seconds ago. And then maybe there's a confirming. If you make a musical analogy, it's um, you're putting an unexpected sharp or flat in the harmony. And instead of it just being a nice uh, one, three, four, uh, one, 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 four, five, you've, you've got a stray sharp or flat note in there. And that can that can really mess with people, and you know if all else fails, have a have a cat jump through the window. You know that's. Um... <laughs> I've had a raccoon come to my window, so uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I... Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But I, I think I, I, it depends whether you're going for the jump scare or the creeping dread. And um, I guess, you know, creeping dread is a drip feed approach and the jump scare is la, 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 pow! You know, um, so <laughs> it... When you reduce them to 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 these uh, to the description of these techniques, it's like um, wow, there's nothing smooth about this process at all, is there? Half your job is to disguise the obviousness of what you're doing, which other writers won't like me for saying out loud, but uh, but it is. <laughs> it really is. Um, I've had limited fiction work myself and it really does always kind of feel uh-huh. like that yeah it's you know it's it's a tough you know people i i shouldn't speak for the tribe but i will most of us don't know what we're doing by which i mean obviously there can be great mastery of craft and there can be very smart analysis of of what one does or what other people do but I think, like all generalizations, this can be this can be picked apart. But um, but I do think it is generally true that for the most part we work by instinct rather than intellect. In fact, you can usually smell when a book is written based on a thought that somebody had. Uh, now, obviously, all books are written based on a thought that somebody has, but. Um, Something that just proceeds from a thematic idea and dresses itself up in fictional drag usually smells of something that, that's wearing somebody else's clothes. Because usually, again, you know, there are always exceptions to the rule. Um, but usually it's not a thought. It's not, or, or let's say it's not a theme that uh, that inspires or triggers. It's... Something much more human uh, and and often quotidian than that. Um, something you see, something you hear, a sudden onrush of emotion, a phrase. You know, you might you might just you hear somebody's voice, and somebody a sentence comes into your head, and there's the way it's not even the content of the sentence. You sort of, I'm now speaking very personally. That this could very well. <laughs> only be true for me. I suspect not. Um, but you hear a sentence and you don't know who's saying it, but there's something about the rhythm and tune of the sentence that then somebody else answers. And you realize you've got two people having a conversation and your your unconscious is overhearing this conversation. And you, hopefully like the eventual reader, you're sort of intrigued by the conversation. You want to know what's going on. So you just run with it. And and I think that that's sort of what I meant earlier about the the bit of crap that gets in the oyster and, um, if you're lucky, becomes a pearl. The triggering, in, not incidents, but the, the, the triggering thing can very often be, look at that old Cuban guy crossing the, at the light. Look at the hat he's wearing. Wow, that guy looks cool. And then he turns a corner and you've no idea who this cool 75-year-old was. But by the time you've driven up Brand Boulevard to the bookstore you were going to, you've kind of got a backstory going for him. And 
where was it? Where was he going when he turned that corner? Who was he meeting? Did he owe him money? Did the other guy owe him money? Is he a musician? He wore a hat like him. So I don't know. Just things, things get rolling, and and if you're lucky, you like the reader or, or viewer. You want to know what happens next. And it, so it's um, <laughs> it's it's reducing it's reducing the exalted position of art to. Um, to like squeezing a boil, <laughs> you just want to get it out of you. You know, it's um, it's like, what is this? And then it, it ha- if you when you're lucky, it has its own momentum. And um, I remember ye- years before I was a practitioner myself, I would hear writers talk. Again, sometimes pompously, sometimes not not deliberately pompously, but they would say things that my eyes would roll at like um i really don't know what the characters are going to do next they decide and i think oh give me a fucking break you know what and um oh the 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 scene wrote itself i didn't know what was going to happen that morning and i thought this was such uh, pretentious bullshit (laughs) which i too now indulge in because the truth is and it doesn't always happen of course but when you're lucky you do get into a zone where, sadly, you still have to do the donkey work of filling in the sentences in between. But, but it does kind of flow without an awful lot of conscious input from you. A uh, hell of a lot of unconscious input, of course. But um, I, I guess I would say that, again, in an ideal situation, because obviously, you know, we all have deadlines and we all have to be professional enough to produce something that will meet those deadlines, even if you're not particularly inspired. But on in the good moments, um, I would say that instinct produces, loosely speaking, the first draft and the intellect polishes and produces the second draft that the unconscious spills and the conscious tidies up. Yeah, that's sort of what I think. It's very well put. <laughs> I do have to say it is comforting creatively. Like I don't, I don't do any writing, but I do a lot of editing and I have been trying to put like rules for myself. But then, you know, after doing this, like the podcasting thing for almost 10 years, I realized there are no set rules. So it's very right. comforting to to you say, well, none of us really know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is. It, it's a weird. I, I'm sure. I'm sure there are people who have given this more thought than me and and can articulate more precisely the interface between instinct and imagination on one side and intellect and analysis on the other. Because you, you certainly need mm-hmm. both. Um, yeah. Because no nobody. I mean, other than fans of the beat poets, I guess, nobody likes pure flow. Just, um, so <laughs> I can't remember mm-hmm. who it was. Some some beautifully mean person read uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road and said, that's not writing, it's typing. He just didn't <laughs> stop. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would like to make it clear this is this <laughs> this is not a catch-all dismissal of the beat generation. Um, oh, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's like you, you don't really like flow. You you do need the controlling intellect to help shape and harness yeah. the stuff. But yeah, 
Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. In your opinion, is there a line that should not be crossed when you're writing uh, horror material? Wow. (laughs) That's a big one, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Well, you know, one feels, uh, as a representative of the tribe, the horror tribe, um, I know that the answer we should make is absolutely not. Everything is fodder to the artistic mill. I think, well, as with so many things in so many walks of life, context is everything. And um, I remember, um, I'll give you an example. Again, this is in no way an expression of disapproval or disapprobation for the creative people involved here, both of whom I admire immensely. Um, but I remember my friend and partner in the Rolling Darkness Review, Glenn Hirschberg, the, the great horror and ghost story writer. Um, we went to see Shutter Island together, the uh, Scorsese movie from the Dennis Lehane book. And as I say, long-time fan of Scorsese and uh, more recent fan, well, more recent, 10 years, you know, but uh, <laughs> of, of the Dennis Lehane novels. But we saw Shutter Island and... I'm not Jewish. Glenn, Glenn is Jewish. A trigger for part of the mechanics of the plot in Shutter Island is the Holocaust. And we both felt... And here's the thing. I am absolutely not saying you can't use the Holocaust as, as, a, as a motif in art, because of course you ha- you can, and people have, and it's produced some heart-rending masterpieces. But it was just a trigger for a plot device in Shutter Island. And we both came to the conclusion, with, with again, no sense of moral disapproval here, because I don't think there was any moral line being crossed by um, Lahaine or Scorsese or, or the screenwriter whose name I'm ashamed to say as a fellow member of the tribe, I cannot currently remember. But we both thought, you know, if it's just going to be a plot trigger, pick something else. Like, don't... So to me, that that would be a line... Again, you know, not a big deal. Nobody should go to jail for things like this. But um, that would be a thing for me. If you're going to deal with truly awful shit then the the piece of work in which you are dealing with that truly awful shit should be of, of, of a level of seriousness that is apropos to it and does not um, diminish or reduce. So, you know, so if you're going to do stuff about genocides or child abuse or, you know, just, just the horrible shit that people do to other people... You know, <laughs> I won't say tread carefully because, again, that implies a sort of taboo or limitation, which is not what I mean. But, um, you know, <laughs> do the right thing, I guess. Uh, and it, it's interesting right now that you asked me this, guys, because um, I've just finished putting together my next short story collection. And I, I am incredibly unprolific and incredibly slow. And... The, I, w- I was still like 10,000 words short of respectable book length. And I was thinking, oh, Christ, 
I need at least another two stories. It'll take me a year. Ugh. And then I remembered that I had this 12,000 word novelette. Actually, I think it's technically it's a novella, but an extremely short novella, about 13,000 words. And it, it's been reprinted once um, after its initial publication, but not not in a big market. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, that's it. If, if I just slap this in there, I'm done. I've got a book, which is fine. But it had a scene which, you know, the 33-year-old that wrote it didn't blink twice at. But when I copy edited it to add to the manuscript, I thought, oh, shit, this is the kind of thing they invent trigger warnings for. Because there's a, well, now I'm torn because I don't want to spoil the scene. But there was a scene that I probably wouldn't have written the same way. Let's put it that way today. Mm-hmm. And it gave me pause. And I thought, well, do I do I mess with it? Do I take it out? Do I censor myself? And um, well, I can't really, <laughs> I can't really <laughs> say anymore without. Well, nobody knows what the name of the story is yet, and the book won't be out for another six months. There's a, a there's what appears to be um, sexual assault at gunpoint. Um, now it turns out that in fact it isn't. It is consensual role play between a couple of not very nice adulterers. And then, in fact, something infinitely worse happens. But that's just good old school horror. But but the actual sort of page and a half before I reveal that it was consensual role play, I sort of read it and I thought, this is, this is trigger warning material. This is exactly what they tell you you're meant to warn people about these days. So... So, so I, I have no observation to make except that that was a very that's a it's a very timely question for me, what you just asked because, I do think we, I think we owe it to our muses whatever they may be, to, progress and follow wherever the artistic imagination takes you, but we also owe it to our fellow human beings, to, be. Again, I, the word careful implies a clipping of the artistic wings. So that's not what I mean, but just be aware. You know, try, try, however hideous the thing you're describing is, I would like to feel that the artist is on the side of the angels um, and that however tough the experience of reading or watching it may be, the responsible artist would would want one's audience to come out the other side of it, feeling that they weren't just having their faces rubbed in crap for the sake of having their faces rubbed in crap. Now, I, I've got friends and acquaintances in the, you know, they call it extreme horror. Or it used to be called splatterpunk, and there are still splatterpunk awards, which are awards for extreme horror, and there's bizarro fiction. And there are people who really fly the flag for extremeness. Is that a word? Certainly not extremity, but for extremeness with no apologies in horror fiction. And I'm not here to complain about them. Uh, I'm I'm not. But yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm babbling. But that that's sort of where I am on, on those <laughs> issues. I am I am thoughtful. They they give me pause and give me thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'm no answer. Indeed. 
Uh, you you brought up uh, Shutter Island earlier, and that that kind of segues into another question that I have sure. is, in in your opinion, what are the top horror films that really nail the genre that are absolute classics that people should study, whether they want to get into film or if they want to get into uh, writing. Right. Right. Um, great question. Cause I, I love talking about other people's stuff more, more than I like talking about <laughs> mine um, because, because I'm first and foremost an enthusiast as I can tell you guys are. So I, I will happily answer the question, but I will point out to your listeners that I am now, much to my chagrin, I am now a man in his 60s. So the movies I'm going to recommend as perfect examples of the genre are probably really crappy examples if you are trying to succeed in today's marketplace. Um, so with that caveat... I'm, you know, I'm very old school. The, the movies I'm going to recommend were old when I was a kid, and they are extremely old now. But I, I'm very old school, and my two favorite, and again, are they even really horror movies? I, I think a, a lot of fans of modern day horror would say they're not horror movies. But my two favorite horror movies are Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, and the original King Kong from 1933, and my. My third favorite movie that goes precisely with them is Jean Cocteau's Orpheus, Orphe, from okay. 1950. And, I mean, that, that's really not a horror movie, though it is, it is a supernatural movie. Yeah, it, it's, it's a fantasy in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Sure, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and arguably, of course, Kong is a fantasy. It has, you know, I'm sure it was pretty scary and pretty horrifying when Kong chomped down on those humans in 1933, but it doesn't doesn't fill us with dread today. Um, And it didn't fill, I'm trying to work out what year I would have seen Kong, probably late 60s, 67, 68 maybe, whenever it first showed up on British television. Um, And Kong wasn't particularly scary then, Again, I apologize to people who've heard me talk before because <laughs> these have been my three favorite movies for 40 years, 50 years in some cases. So um, so I'm going to trot out <laughs> the, the same things, but they remain my favorites. So I have to say what, what they have in common and um, I think what draws me to them and is a clue to what I regard as important in the genre is that they are, uh, I will pop my pretentious hat on briefly they are examples of gnostic cinema g-n-o-s-t-i-c because they're all about the the obsession with knowing you know gnosis from the greek for knowledge they're about the obsession of knowing the shit we shouldn't know they're all about questing to um you have your Dr. Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein who just wants to do this because he wants to do it. You've got Carl Denham in King Kong who heads for the island because he's got to find that creature that nobody's ever seen. Then in the, the magnificent Orphe, of course, you have the poet who's lost his mojo and only rediscovers it by falling in love with a princess from another country, that other country being death. He falls in love with death. In this case, death is a hot chick, which definitely helps. 
but um but he you know he's got to know he they all the movies about wanting to know what lies beyond and uh, horror as a genre of course you know even the trashiest tritest b movie version of horror is about stuff that doesn't happen in real life it's it's always about the beyond one way or another obviously especially supernatural horror but it's always about the beyond but usually um the message is not necessarily a conservative one per se but there's a kind of oh don't look beyond this screen don't don't look beyond these fields you know you you'll get your hand bitten off if if you if you go exploring but those three movies and obviously there are other examples those three movies are really even though there's kind of a comeuppance for for the protagonists there there are consequences in those movies they're really celebratory of that instinct maybe not on the surface of the narrative but um existentially and thematically they celebrate that um that desire to see beyond the veil that desire to go through the curtain so um that's why i dig them and and they stay my favorites they're all in black and white they're all extremely old and they certainly will not satisfy the same urge as return of the living dead part three Having said that, I absolutely recommend Return of the Living Dead Part 3 too. That's an awesome um, movie. I love stuff from the 60s, uh, 50s and 60s. I love Hammer movies. I love stuff from the 70s. Uh, Brian De Palma's first six or seven movies, fucking fantastic. Uh, you know, all, all the stuff that was happening immediately before I was in the business myself, I'm extremely fond of them. And... Uh, I'm also extremely fond of a lot of stuff that's happened in the last 10, 15 years as well. So I I am a big consumer of this stuff. But the truth is, those are my favorites and have been for so long. But yet yeah, to, to would-be practitioners, you can certainly learn things from those three movies. You can learn a lot about... Um, screen magic you can learn a lot about composition you certainly learn a lot about lighting from bride of frankenstein i actually got to see that theatrically a few years ago um yeah at a very nice modern theater and it sang there the it is such a gorgeous film to this day a friend actually who's a huge horror Oh, you said sang. Thank God. I thought you said sank. I thought it was no. playing to an unresponsive oh, audience. Oh, no. It, oh, it, no, it's sang. Oh, that's great. That's tremendous. Great. Played, I, I went, you know, you're, you're talking about the idea of how it played with modern audience. Um, I have a friend who is a horror obsessive, and uh, he, um, he that was his birthday gift, was he wanted us all to go yeah. see it. And so we saw Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein on a double feature at that's this great. very modern multiplex, and it just it, the print they had looked fan. It was a digital print. It looked fantastic. It looked clean, just gorgeous on modern. Oh, that's equipment. great. That's great. Yeah. And what was the average age of the audience? Do you think? You know, it was in their twenties. It was in their twenties. Yeah, um, and it played. It, oh, great, it, it great. Because oh, that's great. That's great. Because you know, we knew it was a rare chance to see this classic work in this in the closest thing to the original context we would ever get. Sure, sure. Fathom Events yeah, does you know, such good. It, 
Yeah. Oh, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, so let me ask you, I mean, clearly you guys are significantly younger than me. Now, obviously, I'm sure you guys go to the movies and, and you love the theatrical experience. But, you know, literally home video, I mean, TV existed, obviously. I'm not that fucking old. But, um, <laughs> but, but if you were going to see movies, we only had the option of, of seeing them in theaters or waiting, you know, four years before they'd show up on TV or something. Video came into existence, videotapes came into existence when I was, I don't know, I was definitely in my 20s, I think. So what is, I'm asking you this question. Now. So <laughs> oh, yeah. what is your your default place to experience a movie and I, 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 it's not a trick question I, i'm not um saying what do you think is better i'm just saying what what is what is your natural when a movie happens i do i is is the theatrical experience the real one for you guys or the home one theatrical if possible for me yeah very much though, yeah though the voice down the hall is kind of limiting that <laughs> yeah i guess for me obviously it would depend on on the film itself yeah no that makes sense for me it's uh yeah austin's answer theatrical possible but man do i miss the video rental store <laughs> like streaming is great but there's just <laughs> there's just something about knowing that you've got like i don't know six bucks at your disposal and you can rent two movies and just and it makes your choice a little more careful, and it and it's about sure. the hunt too. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I so. get that absolutely. Yeah, it's something that yeah, a lost art in the streaming age. Yeah, I think that's one right. reason. I'm so obsessive about collecting movie ads is because it's that I'm holding on to. It, it's almost for me become my version of keeping that alive. I hunt for ads for movies, you know, through the archives yeah. that I've got access to because I want to keep that experience preserved because if I want to find the movies, now it's three clicks and I've got them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Like for, for me, most of my fondest experiences with film have not been in the theater, but rather on home video, whether it's uh, maybe not necessarily the rental store, but the library and just, Sure, borrowing a sure. few classics off the shelf, give them a watch, return, and then building upon that. <laughs> there have been a few times where uh, the theatrical experience has been indeed uh, magical. I have seen films like A, a Trip to the Moon, uh, the classic mm -hmm. Melies film, mm -hmm. Buster Keaton's the Cameraman, The General. Ah, masterpiece. Masterpiece. Yes. And uh, Wings played at uh, played at a theater with an actual Grand Page organ, nice and screen there. So it stuff like that where it's really an elevated experience. But for me, the highlight would be uh, watching uh, watching the IMAX engagement of two thousand one Space Odyssey when I'm that so was out. Wow. Yeah, when that was out just before the uh the initial lockdown started, I I went in in the middle of one afternoon and in the theater it was just me and maybe 10 other people wow. all 
all far older than I was, but sure. <laughs> just sitting there and finally seeing it on a screen intended for for a film of that magnitude as opposed to something on on a DVD or right or even something you take with you like a portable DVD player to sure. see it play out sure. that large and immersive right there's there's nothing quite like it yeah i mean t- t- 2001 it, that's a fantastic um, litmus test isn't it for uh, for 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 this issue i think and you know I, i've seen the hd transfer uh, the Blu-ray transfer of two thousand, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's a fantastic job. And you know, these days we all have bigger TVs with the right aspect ratio and probably pretty good sound systems. Um, but yeah, I was um, uh, thirteen when two on two thousand and one's initial release. That's when um, my dad showed it to me. Actually, oh, that's that's how he showed it to you the first well, time. He, he it? Yeah, I was thirteen when he. Uh, had me watch it because he thought it would blow my mind oh. and it's been a reference point for me ever since that so. well that's funny yeah there's um i i forget who this was but there's a famous exchange um and you know, 2001 technically a science fiction film though it's not directly doesn't have to be to make this point but it was a conversation among science fiction writers and in science fiction this is back in the 60s or 70s and um and uh, you know a bunch of fellow nerds were were talking and somebody was arguing that the golden age of and they're talking essentially about prose here not not movies um somebody argued that the golden age of science fiction was the 1930s and somebody else said no no the golden age was the 1940s that's when we got uh, asimov and clark and heinlein and somebody else said, no, the golden age was the 1950s when science fiction beat. And th- this argument was going on. And then some wise old man, and I'm ashamed to say I can't remember who it was, said, guys, the golden age of science fiction is 12, meaning that it doesn't matter whether it's from the 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s. The shit that hits you when you're 12, or in our case, apparently 13 for 2001, yeah. um, that's the golden age when when the magic happens for you you will always associate that with um with the 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 way this stuff is meant to make you feel and sadly i guess like heroin reputedly i've never done it but um <laughs> each each hit is slightly less good than the one before so you know we spend sadly the rest of our lives waiting to be quite as transcended as um, as we were by that 13-year-old experience. But I think that the golden age of science fiction as 12 is absolutely applicable to, to any genre or any form. The golden age of pop music is 12. Maybe the golden age of pop music is 14 or 15, because you probably need to have hit puberty. It's, to, it's uh, funny you say that. Um, I do a column where I've been looking at the best songs of each year uh-huh. uh, from 1980 to 2010. And I just hit my 14, 13, 14, 15 columns. I wrote them while I've been in lockdown for COVID. Yeah. And yeah, I make, I, I actually make that observation in those that this is when they say it is. And yeah, I, sure. I think there's truth to that. Oh, I think, I mean, it's great when you can still be knocked out by something in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. 
and uh, and I still want to be knocked out by things. Um, but yeah, there's something about that first, um, like a first love, I guess. Uh, there's something about that first, because you know we'd all seen movies before we were thirteen or twelve. We'd all heard records before we were fourteen. We'd all read, you know. But somehow there's a sort of you're coming into your own as as you know an adolescent slash young adult. Um, you're starting to understand, and somehow your your appetite for this it's it's the perfect collision of. Um, your emerging appetite and the, the the thing that is going to feed it for the rest of, of your life. Um, Peter, the question that we always ask uh, our, our guests is anything you want to plug? Anything you want to promote? <laughs> I think accidentally I've, I've, I've already plugged it. I mean, th- th- I appreciate the opportunity guys and thank you. And the Hellraiser Bloodline paperback only came out, uh, what, three months, two months ago now. Uh, so you've already plugged that for me. And thank you very much. That's still very much available on Amazon. And we will have a link. And I, I, the, there is a, uh, if you can put a link up, that'd be terrific. Thank you. And, um, and as I say, I've just, um, I've completed my next collection of short stories, which will, I, I mean, there won't be a link yet. I have to, uh, and Cyclopocalypse will be doing the ebook and the audio book. Um, oh, Shadow Ridge, who did my last collection, will be doing the trade paperback. And you know, maybe we'll find some um, sucker who wants to <laughs> who wants to do the signed limited hardcover, small press run of a signed limited hardcover. But that you know that that, that that'll be a few months away. I'll be watching for that. Great, thank you very much. And you know. Other stuff is, I guess, I need to learn to uh, to sign off with my social medias. Is is what it is, isn't it? I'm I'm on Facebook under my own name. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Limey Bastard Fifty Five, <laughs> and um, and there's a link tree on Instagram which will take you to the other places like the IMDb page and the Amazon author page and stuff like that. So if people are intrigued and interested. Uh, I'm very findable, and thank you, guys. Excellent. Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. Truly. No, it's been a lot of fun, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So you can find us at facebook.com slash theomniplex. Of course, email us, you know, love, hate, suggestions, whatever you want. Theomniplexpodcast at gmail.com. We are, of course, on the Twitters at at the omniplex rate us on your favorite podcatcher yeah that's all our stuff yep thank you again peter (laughs) thank you guys it's been great thanks